Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Hello and welcome back to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mabe, and we are well into 2023. And I tell you what, this year I'm so excited to kick off our podcast. We have a special guest we'll get to in a minute. But first and foremost, uh, Joe Krosik's out this month. I got another co-host in the house. You all should know Coach Clint Martin. Coach, what is going on? It's all good. Good to be back in the booth. Coach, before we get to our guests, who you're going to introduce in a moment, Coach, how was your fall? 2022, how was it? Fall has been great. I mean, it was looking up, obviously, at UT Athletics had a really good year in 22, or 21, I guess, finishing 21, starting early 22. So fall, high expectations, and I think we'll meet them. Coach, I know you will, and uh, we're looking forward to this new year. With that, would you do uh, the the honors of introducing introducing our honored guest today? Absolutely. Today, we are so fortunate to have Dr. Jan Todd um, in the studio with us. Doctor, she's got her PhD. She is the department chair of the Ken Department. Honor lecturer, really most importantly for me, she is an awesome friend. And at this point, I'd say she's family to us. Uh, there's not enough titles in the world to give Jan and to let you guys know what she means to us. But if you had to give her one word, I would say strong. I would, I would I like say it. strong. I like I'll take it. that. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Glad. Todd, thanks for being here with us today. Oh, this is fun, and I'm really glad to do this. And I think you do know that you and Donnie and most of the athletic staff down there underneath the, the north end zone are people I consider to be family. And, and if I can just say one little shout-out um, so people understand who you guys are. Back in 2013, when Tyrion and I were flooded and our house was four feet of water in it when we had the Onion Creek flood, just wanted to let people know that like the first group of folks who showed up at my door were Donnie and Clint and other people from the athletic department, Trey Zapata and, and, Sandy. And, and Sandy Abney, yeah. and even Trey Hardy, the Olympian, who I didn't really know that well, but you guys came out and that was a thing that I will never forget for the rest of my life. Family. Absolutely, 100% to the core. That's yeah, what you are to us. I think really, though, people don't understand that, like, I was thinking about this the other day, that one of the things about UT that the public doesn't see because they see, like, the big university is there are actually families within within inside this institution, you know, circles of friends who interact with each other and um, and who are there for each other in really important ways. And, uh, and I've always felt, you know, coming in like I did, with my husband, Terry Todd, back in the early 80s when we moved back to Austin, it's like we were welcomed by the strength community here, the early strength coaches like Jeff Madden and other folks that I admired so much. But it's also been like, it's also that, it's like your family. It's like you always have those guys to go to when you need some support or just even a good conversation, which is why I'm here today. We love it. We love it. So for those of you who don't, know who she is we're gonna give her the mic and let her talk a little bit but 
we're just going to get into the easy piece of like, how did you get into strength? So actually, I grew up before Title IX passed. And so because of that, I didn't do a lot of sports in high school. We didn't really have the girls' sports teams in my school. I did swim on a private club team for a while, and I played a little softball on a rec sports team on, for the town. But when I went to the university, I met Terry Todd, fell in love with him. We got married um, actually during my senior year of school. I had never met anybody really who lifted weights. I had never seen anybody who lifted weights in the kind of the way that Terry Todd had done. And Terry, for those of you who don't know, was also a faculty member here at UT and was also before that both a working journalist and the national champion in men's, the first national champion in men's powerlifting in the heavyweight class and also a national Olympic lifting champion. So he was really much a groundbreaker, pioneer, and then as a writer, he helped to create what I call the Iron Game. In other words, to give publicity to all the strength sports and also to be somewhat of a visionary and thinking about new things that we could try, which we'll talk about maybe a little bit later. But back to me, so when I met him and married him, I started going to the gym with him and hanging out and doing the light stuff that girls normally do when they go to the gym. And I wasn't really very engaged by that. And in 70, let's see, what have been 73, we came home to Austin. I met uh, a young woman who was training at a club here in Austin that's gone now. It used to be called uh, the Texas Athletic Club. It used to be down on 13th Street. And she was deadlifting that day in the gym. It was the first woman I ever really saw lift weights. And it turned out that she was competing on a men's team in men's powerlifting contests as their lightweight lifter. And um, and so she was there, and I was like, what are you doing? And she was working up in the deadlift, and she showed me, and Terry was there, of course, and he was nodding his head in great appreciation of this. <laughs> and so I, so I weighed, you know, I weighed like 165 pounds then, and I deadlifted 225 pounds that day the first time I tried it, so I worked up with her. And I was like, oh, that was kind of interesting, because I hadn't really thought of myself as a strong person. Um, I was smart, you know, I was a good student, that kind of, I mean, I had those things going on. But anyway, riding home in the car, Terry said to me, you know, I think you could train and you could maybe be a lot stronger. But in 73, we didn't have any organized weight sports for women. Powerlifting doesn't start officially till 1977. Women's weightlifting starts after that. Women's bodybuilding starts officially after that. And so there wasn't like a room full of other women that I could go or some contest where I could go to. But I decided, um, we discovered in the Guinness Book of Records that there were like two lifts in the Guinness Book at that time for women. One was an overhead lift that was supposedly done by Katie Sanduino, which I think they listed at like 286 pounds. I didn't figure that was in the cards right away. But they listed a deadlift of 392 pounds for this woman named Jane DeVesley. And I don't know why, but I just thought, oh, that would be interesting to see if I could break that record. And so we then changed what I was doing in my workouts. Terry was very encouraging and supportive. And again, there was no, there was no meet to go to with full of women. But about a year later, I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and deadlifted 394 and a half pounds and got in the Guinness Book of Records for the first time. And that changed my life. Because when I went home to Macon, Georgia, where we were at the time, because I had been a student at Mercer University, 
when I went home to Macon then, and of course, Terry always had media connections, as you guys know. He was terribly connected to everybody. <laughs> and so this reporter calls from the Macon News and wants to come out and interview me about my lift. And it is like, remember, this is right after Title IX has passed. Women doing sports in general is kind of new and rare. And so this man came out and interviewed me, and, and he asked this important question where he said, well, okay, well, what's next? And I hadn't thought about what was next. I mean, I was like doing this kind of like a lark. You know, it's like there isn't any sport here. I'm just going to go do this. And so when we finished the interview and he says, what's next? I was like the first thing out of my mouth was, oh, well, I don't know. You know, I know powerlifting has a total. And it would be really cool to be the first woman to total 1,000 pounds. And, of course, that got printed in the paper. <laughs> and no then, pressure. <laughs> no pressure. But also, I hadn't really been squatting at that time or bench pressing. And my bench always sucked anyway. I mean, I was terrible at the bench. And it was like, but then you put it out there, and then you think, okay, well, I guess I'll try that. Mm -hmm. And that was really how it started. And so I did that. Um, we Terry and I moved up to Nova Scotia in 75. little interruption in training because of that. But we found some training partners at Dalhousie University, where he was a faculty member. And that first year we were there, I was actually the secretary for the music department. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's where my academic career started, I secretary for that. the music department. That's really cool. cool path. That's yeah, cool. The, the career path is starting. Well, to... Yeah, because, you. I mean, my majors are English and philosophy as an undergrad. So I'm, I'm the least qualified person in some ways to be teaching or to be the chair now of kinesiology, perhaps. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, um, and so... About a year after that, I went up to Nova Scotia and, I mean, excuse me, I went to Newfoundland for a competition up there and broke the 1,000-pound total. And in those days, Sports Illustrated had a little feature called Faces in the Crowd. I remember that, yeah. The little pictures. I love that, that part, yeah. So you can find me in 77 in Faces in the Crowd in my, since my school picture, my long hair. And, uh, and somebody at SI then decided that they needed to figure out who this woman was who was lifting right. weights. And so they then sent a reporter up to Nova Scotia where we lived on a farm in the country. We were kind of doing a, well, I think, Donnie, you know, we always had ranches and places in the country right. and stuff like that. And uh, and so they sent a reporter up who was supposed to write a column, like a, just a single thing, and instead decided that we were unusual because, I mean, it is unusual to have a professor who's doing what he's doing, and then his wife is lifting weights, and didn't make a whole lot of sense at first. But um, as you guys know and remember, Terry was an amazingly interesting, complicated man and really knowledgeable about all kinds of things. And so it ended up as a big feature story in Sports Illustrated, which for me then led to more things. But one of the things that happened about that, and I just want to, and I'll wrap this up real quick, is that because when that article came out in Sports Illustrated, which was in November of 77, as I recall, I started getting letters from other women, mm -hmm. some of whom were track athletes, which I know you, Clint, will appreciate. They were girls who had been told by their coaches that they should start lifting weights for throwing the shot or the discus for, you know, even the sprinters, and they had resisted that. And I got notes from a number of girls, which I still have and saved, saying, I really want to thank you for what you're doing and the fact that you were in Sports Illustrated and we can see, you know, I'm married, I'm, you know, because all, all those confusions that we had in the 70s about what women would look like if they lifted weights and how 
and you know what that would mean. You know, um, it. I could tell that, and I didn't intend this, but I could tell that weirdly, what I was doing had some political impact sure. for other women. That's so, awesome. anyway, that's how it started, and then it just went on, and you know, I was in the Guinness Book for, I don't know, thirteen, fourteen years, something like that. I did. Yeah, phenomenal. I did a lot, but it was early too. It's early. It's always easy to be the record setter in the early stages of a sport. And I'll admit that. We're not going to downplay that. No. <laughs> a thousand pounds total. The courage, the courage and the mentality it took for you to step out into an area nobody had ever done, That's that takes so much. And that's the thing that it still marks your life today. You're still that same person. Well, you know, the Sports Illustrated de- described me as the strongest woman in the world. Right. And that led to Carson and People Magazine and a bunch of other opportunities. And the Guinness people had me appear for them in, you know, state fairs where they had like the Guinness booth and, you know, and for after, after I, we, I left, you know, I, I only worked at Dalhousie one year. I taught public school a couple of years and I had a team of girls then that I trained from high school who actually went to the first women's nationals with me. Um, but it was, it was, it was always sort of done in this, like that era of like, is it still, is it okay for women to be lifting weights? We still had to navigate all that. My own mother was not a huge fan, as you can imagine. Sure, of course, you know, yeah. Because uh, it was so unusual. But um, but I competed for a long time. I was there at the birth, you know, at the first Women's Nationals, lifted in that. I was really involved in the organization of women's powerlifting. I actually helped draft the original rules for girls for sport for powerlifting. I didn't know that either. You didn't know that? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was the na- I wasn't the first national women's chairman because I was living in Canada at that time, but I was um, when Terry and I moved back the following year I became the national women's chairman. And I was national women's chairman and then I was international women's chairman. Um, I actually coached the national women's team twice in the early 80s, but in I mean, one of the other oddities of my life is that in 81 and 84, I was actually the national men's team coach at the World's Championships. Wow. Yeah. That's so, different. That's, that's, no, yeah. that's against the grain. That's Well, like it was it. interesting because the guys supported that because I actually, by that time, I mean, I was friends with most of the top male lifters because Terry and I would go to the men's nationals. Kazmaier was living with us at our house, you know, around that time. Lamar Gant stayed with us at our house. Terry Terry and I keep adopting people in different ways. I <laughs> <laughs> did know that one. I for Mark, sure knew like that Like Mark Henry Mark later Henry, on. Yep. Like Mark later, but there were earlier versions of that as well. And, uh, and so there were people, like at the national meets, we would go. And, I mean, you know, I was by that, by, you know, by 80 or so, there were college students that I was coaching at Auburn and other kind of things that we were doing. And so, like, when we, I took the men's team to Calcutta, India, mm-hmm. which is a historic trip I will never forget. And um, with lots of controversy that kind of goes beyond what we're talking about here today. But um, anyway, but we won. And and when I was there, um, somebody said to me, I'm not sure if there's ever been a woman coach a men's team at a world championships. No. And I said, well, I'm sure there hasn't been in powerlifting. And then the guy said to me, he said, I mean in any sport, which is mm. actually kind of a thing to think about. Right. I mean, what you think that. modern day, that's huh? the big buzz now, women crossing over into baseball and football now. It's just starting to happen now. Yeah. So that was but You way, were doing that back then. Right. So. Yeah, this was way early 80s. That. 
just didn't get the notoriety it did. You know? Well, it did in India because in imagine. India, when we were there, they televised the whole the whole world championships right. it was on TV all five days of it. And so Calcutta is this incredible, at that time was this incredible city full of, you know, decay. Um, you know, like the the vestiges of the British Empire, the, all these big colonial buildings are, you know, are crumbling apart. The streets are filled with people who are homeless. I saw more children there in one that week with who were missing limbs than I ever saw in my life. And the poverty was just overwhelming. And but we, it's sort of like their version of BBC. Like we were on the state TV all day long, every day with the contest. And it got to where I couldn't, I'm not lying, I couldn't go out of the hotel without my guys around me because as soon as I would go out, they were yelling, Madam Coach, Madam Coach. Wow. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then, and so Ernie yeah. Hackett and Mike Bridges and some of those guys were like my bodyguards. And we all laughed about it because, of course, we came home and it was like, Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. That's a good but it shows, how, But it shows also the power of, the t of television Absolutely. to help things. So. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, segue. Uh, thank you for sharing all that. I think a good piece here I'd love to circle back on is talk about Terry for a moment. Absolutely. Um, just real quick, my first, I remember first meeting uh, you and Terry. I was a very young, green strength coach in 1998, uh, 28 years old. This is what I remember the most, Clint, about when I first met him. Like, who are these people that keep coming to the weight room? Because we were, I was working with football and Mad Dog, Jeff Madden was our head strength coach at the time. And I go, they seem very important. And, but th this is what was throwing me off. They're super nice. Um, and they're talking to me. I'm the little peon on the on the bottom of <laughs> so they're treating me really nice, you know, which is you don't always see that in athletics, right? And the one thing I remember about Terry was Terry was always just so insightful. Like he would be watching and paying paying attention and taking notes and you didn't know it. And so my best memories of, of Terry is just him hanging out on the weight room floor, just talking about life and he always got into training. And uh so you guys, I think if I could sum up in one word, you guys are selfless. You guys give all the time. And you never expect anything back, which is a rare trait to find. So, Terry, just great memories, obviously. Uh, honorable man. The, as much as he's done for our profession, we thank you. But what's your one of your fondest memories of Terry you'd like to share? Oh, wow. I'm sure you'll have a plethora. Well, yeah, I mean, I have lots of. I'm trying to think about something that's strength related. Um, I remember the well. I remember the very first time I was aware of him. I can tell that real quickly, and this because it's you'll laugh at this. I hope. So I met him for the first time, or saw him for the first time when he came in to do a lecture at Mercer University when I was a freshman. Okay. Okay. And so he walks into this auditorium. There's like 150 students there, and he's got on blue jeans. And this is, you know, early 70s, blue jeans and a short sleeve shirt. With this, and I'm making a motion here so that the sleeves are kind of higher on the biceps than they would normally be. And it's a dress shirt with the buttons down the front. And anyway, and he has this really distinctive look because he weighed about 250 then. He looked more like a bodybuilder than anybody I'd ever seen in person. And he turns around, introduces himself and says, I'm going to write, and this is before PowerPoint, so I'm going to write the title of the lecture on the board. And the title of the lecture was, are you ready? It was The Educational Value of Hucking Around. <clears throat> that would get everybody's that attention. Would, <laughs> well, not just attention. <laughs> the educational yes. uh, of 
You know, I remember this That's story. a showstopper. That's I a showstopper. told it at the funeral. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and that, and I told it, I told this story at his funeral because as a student sitting there, I was like, do I laugh? Because, and then everybody else laughed because the book we were reading was Huckleberry Finn. Sure. That was what he was doing. But that was Terry. I mean, like he could take anything and make it interesting and put a twist on it. And he used humor over and over again to teach lessons. And I know one of the things about him that, you know, Terry was very committed to the civil rights movement. And um, I remember Lance Blanks telling me one time that he had a class with Terry when he taught here at UT. And he said, you know, I think he was the first professor that ever talked about race in class with me. Wow. Yeah. And that's kind of who he was. But on a personal level, um, like when I think about, you know, my moments with him and like, like special moments with him. I think some of those moments came when like, and, I, and I'm thinking more recently, like the day we met Mark Henry and I saw him, Mark, we met Mark when he was still in high school. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Mark is a WWE superstar in their Hall of Fame. He was also twice the uh, national, I mean, twice Olympian and I seven or eight time national champion in, in weightlifting. A phenomenal athlete, still lives here in Austin and, um, and also has a wonderful grandson right now who is tearing up the field for Lake Travis. Yeah, I see, I see news clippings all the time about Jacob, him. Jacob Todd Henry. Yeah, his son, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who is my grandson. Oh, your grandson. officially. Yeah. He is uh, officially right, my grandson. Right. Does he <laughs> listen to you? Huh? Does he listen? He does, actually. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway, very proud of Mark and Jacob and Joanna, his younger sister, and the whole family. So, in any case, but I remember, like, Terry was the kind of person who could watch Mark lift in a high school meet, which he did, and then understand the potential that was there in people. And we then had a conversation where we sat down together and, and Terry was asking him about, well, what are you going to do? Where, what's your goal? Because you would sort of think automatically that Mark would go play football someplace. Right. Um, but he'd been hurt and hadn't had the season he wanted to have. And so, and Terry, and then he said, but you know what I really would love to do? He said, I've always kind of thought it would be neat to be like Vasily Alexiev, the great weightlifter. And for Terry, that was all he needed to, to hear to think about, okay, well, we're going to, let's see what we can do. So he moved in with us a little bit later. And that was when Angel Spasov was first here, another great strength coach that we've had yeah. here at the University of Texas. And Angel had worked in Bulgaria with the Olympic weightlifters. And Angel also understood that though Mark had never done Olympic lifting, and it's really late to try to start that when you're about 19. You know, Mark was not a normal kid. I mean, he was 380 pounds, about 6'3". He squatted over 800 pounds at that high school meet. He benched over 500 pounds, as I recall. He's still a senior in high school at this age. Yeah. And uh, But the other important thing about him, and the thing that Angel Spasov understood, the Bulgarian strength coach who then helped him get started um, with weight, Olympic weightlifting, was that... He could do a front-to-back split, just like a cheerleader could, and he could dunk a basketball. And you think about elevating— That's what's mine, at 380. Yeah, yeah. He was actually in the slam fest several years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, doing—he could really dunk at 380. And uh, and if you think about about that in terms of, like, power output, that's just unbelievable. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. To elevate that fast yeah. and also absorb. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, hey, I want to I wanna get a little bit into— we're talking about Stereo the Stark Center, just for a second, 
So the Stark Center's mission is dedicated to acquiring, providing access to archival materials in the fields of physical culture and sports, uh, supporting and conducting humanities-based research related to health, human performance, competitive sport, physical culture, and body, preserving the history of physical culture and sports and educating the public about the cultural and scientific significance of physical culture of sports through publications, digitization, web-based initiatives, and museum exhibits. That's a mouthful. What do you think you're setting out your legacy? What are you setting out to do? What's kind of the, the end goal there? Let me back up just a second and sort of explain a little bit about what this is and how it started, if I could. Um, so when Terry Todd was a doctoral student here at UT in the 60s, he wanted to write about the history of weightlifting. And that was what he wanted to do for his dissertation. And if you think about institutions like universities, like part of what we do as universities is we preserve knowledge. Like we're, we, we save things. I mean, that's, we do that by writing textbooks that say this is what we need to know about exercise physiology. But we also do it by creating libraries and special collections and things like that that the institution then sub- provides and supports provide support for. So in Terry's case, when he was an active lifter, wanting to write about the sport he loved and that he also understood probably before most people in America, the value of weight training for sport. You know, I mean, this is, he's living through this era when there aren't strength coaches and then we're going to start having strength coaches and the NSCA is going to be coming along. He was fully aware of all that. And he really understood that like most institutional libraries had almost nothing related to strength and weightlifting or training in their collections. And so he, for his dissertation, found a guy up in Pennsylvania who had a large private collection. He used his collection. And then he decided, you know, on his own nickel to start thinking about, we have to start collecting this stuff. Somebody has to start saving it. And he actually thought that Otley Coulter's collection should have come to Texas back in the 60s. And Mr. Coulter actually came down and talked about this in the 60s with the librarians. And then it didn't happen. So when Otley Coulter died in the 70s, after I had become involved with lifting, we were living in Canada at the time, and when Otley died, his family contacted Terry and said, hey, Dad's stuff is here, and we're going to sell it, and he said to call you first. So Terry and I had like zero money at that time. We just, you know, we're young, we're newly newly married, and oh, all yeah. this. Yeah, you know, you know, it's not, it's what it is. And um, in any case, so we... Terry said to me, we really have to save this. And so we went down to to near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to, and uh, worked out a deal with his family. We bought the collection. Terry then left me to pack it. He had to go on to do more important things, which was okay. <laughs> <laughs> that happened often in our relationship. But I hired um, a, a grandson of Mr. Coulter's, and I packed 385 boxes of materials at his house. I also fell through the ceiling. Spec- That's a lot. Oh my God. That's a lot. Spectacularly. They fell had, through the ceiling. Yeah, because it was all up in his attic. And they actually had. It was weekend or something? Well, they had a, they had moved a staircase. It was an old Victorian house. And at some point, they had moved a staircase. And so there was a section of, this, of the attic, which I didn't know about, that was only sheetrock. Like there were no. And I was walking, carrying a box, just going across the floor, and truly fell all the way through the 10 foot ceiling down to the living room below where the family is sitting at the couch 
It's a movie scene. It's a movie scene. Well, no, and they're on they're eating on TV trays. And where I happen to land, and I swear to God, this is true, I land exactly on top of the television with the box kind of in my lap. (laughs) And the TV explodes because it has one of those old, you know, uh, big tubes in it, you know, that makes the picture. And then I fall over to the side into a bookcase. It's one of those fairly flimsy metal bookcases that cut you up. And so, anyway... But I wasn't hurt, thank God for my bone mass being what sure. it is. And so because, and that was probably like a Friday or something, because I was doing an exhibition with Larry Pacifico, the great you know, power lifter, oh, yeah. in Ohio like on Monday. We were doing a sort of promotional thing there. We were going to try to do a double deadlift world record to promote the world yes. championships. Yeah. And um, and I that was the first thing I thought about was— uh, what's going to happen here? But we we made the record anyway, so it was good. What was that record? Uh, Eleven hundred pounds. Nothing. Big, yeah, something you know, like well. Something. The nice thing about Larry and I was that um, he probably won't like me saying this was we were exactly the same height. <laughs> no, he won't like that. He won't like no. that. That's okay. But it was perfect ah. because when we were lifting, like the thing with the trick with the double deadlift, why it's dangerous is you want to make sure that your finished position is so that the hands are all the same. So it doesn't really matter what leg lengths are, body length. It's just it's where the hands end up. Sure. And we actually matched up great. So anyway, that was fun. That's awesome. But the but that was kind of the start of the collection, and then and so over the years we kept adding to it. We brought our collection as it was in 83 with us when we came back to campus. When we moved into the North End Zone, where the Stark Center is right now, we moved more than 3,000 boxes of materials. Oh, my goodness. We have 3, the large 3,000 boxes and book carts and other kinds of odd things. And we have lots, of course, of weights. But the thing that Terry and I realized along the way was that given the importance of strength and conditioning to the entire world of sports and to the world of health, which we don't really talk about as much as we should. I mean, but there's just no question that lifting weights as you age is one of the most important things that you can do. Um, And so we, you know, I say we, but it was originally Terry, but then also me, we continue to try to do that. And to so we really have the largest collection in the world now in that field there at the Stark Center, including lots of really, really rare personal papers, um, like George Hackenschmidt's original scrapbooks, Pudgy Stockton from Muscle Beach. We have all of her stuff and all of that. But the other side of what we do, and you mentioned the sports side, is that we do collect materials and have a library that people can come and use related to general sports. But also, in particular, we're also the depository now for UT Athletics. And so when— I didn't know that. Yeah. So when when you guys moved out of the west side of Belmont Hall and all those media relations files that Nick Voinus used to be in charge of— all of those files are now at the University of Texas. And since then, Mac Brown, Jody Conrad, Chris Plonsky, um, Augie Garrido, I could go on and on and on. All of those people have donated stuff to our collections. So, for example, I have Daryl Royal's scrapbooks. Oh, my gosh. I've got his—I have, like—I have over 20 scrapbooks that were kept by Tom Kite's mom— uh, all through his the golfing golfer. career, yeah, the golfer, yeah. the famous golfer. We have Ben Crenshaw's stuff. We have things from all kinds of people. And, um, and you know, I mean, 
there's just dozens of UT athletes who have now started donating things to us. And one of the things that I really hope people can appreciate and understand is that that is as important a mission for us because not only because we're here, but also because there's more student interest in some ways in those kinds of materials than there are in other things. I mean, like Terry and I were over with Mac Brown. Um, you know, he always had his staff meetings on Wednesday mornings. You remember yep, that? Yep. And so the last Wednesday that he was in his office, he invited us to come over and help him make choices of what would get saved. So I have actually some of his daytimers where he would have his notes yeah, yeah. about what he was going to do. They have notes in them like what he was going to say at, at halftime and tell wow. the team. And so some of that stuff is really wonderful. I got this. I got to pull this out, yeah, Clint, because yeah. um, she's got me thinking about it. One of my favorite is Arnold Schwarzenegger. You guys are mm-hmm. are good friends with him. Uh, and I know this, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but like okay. talk about Arnold and kind of your relationship and kind of, because he's been in the Stark Center. And- he has. In fact, we have a new exhibit that we just put up um, that um, actually is filled with material that Arnold sent us. That um, So in in the, most people are aware that somewhere in the, in the early days of sort of cable TV, people began looking for all kinds of new TV shows. And one of the early inventions was a show called uh, The World's Strongest Man that started in the late 70s. Terry actually was involved in the first couple of years of that show. And then, but it has gone on. It's one of these long standing success stories. And so it's also, though, interesting, it started as a TV show, but that TV show actually created a sport which is the sport that we now call strongman. And so in the 90s, um, as the sport was getting bigger and bigger and there was more interest, especially in Europe and other countries, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has been a friend for a long time, um, asked Terry um, and me, but more Terry than me in in the beginning, asked us about the possibility of creating a special strongman show for his sports festival that he does every year in Columbus, Ohio. And I was actually on the phone with my, you know, with Arnold's office this morning, in fact. Yeah, that's good. About the fact that of what we're going to be doing in in, um, March of 2023, when we're going to be doing for the first time what we now call the Arnold Strongman Classic. But for the first time this year, we're also having... Uh, the same kind of contest for women, which we're going to be calling the Arnold Strong Woman Classic. Oh, I love that. And I'll be directing, so I'll be directing both of those. So I've already invited, so to back up a second, so in 2002, Terry and I started running a show for Arnold and his partner, Jim Lorimer, and Mr. Lorimer just passed away in the fall, to my great regret. One of the best guys I ever met is. You yeah, know, you just, posted something on him, and I took time to read it. I was blown away by he's the kind just, of individual he was. He was an amazing guy. I right. mean, and and for you guys who don't know anything about track and field history, so in the fifties, this is an aside. In the fifties, when um, the Soviets were beating us all the time at these international meets, because especially mainly because our women were bad, our men's track teams were pretty good, but our women. Had there were no women, you know, except maybe a few women at some of the historically black colleges who were really into track and field, and so Lorimer, who at that time is working for Nationwide Insurance, um, he actually decided when watched one of these meets, went home to Columbus, Ohio, and decided to form a women's track team in the fifties. 
And so he created interracial track teams for girls who were like 13, 14, 15 years old on his own nickel in the city of Columbus out of patriotism so that American women could do better in that's track. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's oh, who wow. he was. And, um, and then that led him to connections to the AAU, which led him to running some weightlifting meets because he was a lifter as well. And that led to his friendship with Arnold, which is how the festival started. Truly one of the most admirable men I ever knew. And, uh, and the other interesting thing about him, he just died at 96, was that when he was in his 80s, he decided to go back and start auditing classes at the University of— at, at, In his uh, 80s? At Ohio State. Wow. Yeah, he wanted to stay fresh. And so he was taking sport philosophy classes with a guy named Bill Morgan, who I know. And then he would send me little notes. Hey, Jan, what about this? You know, what I, he was talking about this in class. What do you think? I mean, it was just, it was just, he was an extraordinary person. Terry and I started the Arnold Strongman Classic based around the idea, not that we should try to find out how much muscular endurance the guys have, but to actually figure out how strong they were because strength and muscular endurance are not exactly the same thing. And so we were also limited in our thinking about the show by creating events that could be done on a 40 by 40 stage, where in the middle of that, you actually have about a 25 by 25 foot square that's actually solid enough to hold weights because it was up on a big platform in a convention center. So the show became, it changed the sport. I mean, you can look at what we did, the, the ideas for events that we created. Um, I was Terry's partner through that, along with another guy named Steve Slater, who's terrific and still runs the show. Um, after Terry passed in 2018, um, they asked me to continue running the show. And so Steve and I continue to be partners, and um, we're gearing up right now for 2023. Love it. When was the first Arnold? What year? The very Of the festival or the, or the, the contest? Of the actual contest. 2000. Uh, I'm sorry, 2002. 2002. Yeah. Well, that's. So we're. This will be 21 years I've done it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, and it's true, that's sort of pulled me away from powerlifting in some ways. And, um, but I'm very excited. You know, Strong Women has been, there are a lot of women interested in competing. There are contests for both amateurs and pros and Strong Women, but we've never really had the same sponsorship packages. And this is really because of Rogue Fitness, yeah. who has stepped in to try to, to sort of help with some of these inequities that we're having in the sport. And so the contest that we're going to be doing in March in Columbus, Ohio, tickets are on sale now. <laughs> I should put my little shout in. Huh? But we're going to have the men and the women do the, exactly the same events. Um, and so That is incredible. And so we'll yes. actually have as much equity as I can create. And I have to admit I'm really I'm really happy that I'm being I'm able to be part of of this and bring this to this new opportunity out there for women. I'm, I like I like doing this. Since we're talking yeah. about the Arnold, I, yeah. have, I have to do it. Like, obviously, if you guys are listening, you hear the dates and you hear the names. Like, she is an academic, right? You understand where she's coming she's from. She's got a full plate. She was a damn good athlete now. We, we got to talk right. about that. We, we talked about the 1,000-pound the thousand, like, thousand or 1,100-pound double deadlift. We talked about some other things you've done. But you were the first woman to ever lift the Denny Stones. Yeah, I did do that. You're the first woman to ever lift the Denny Stones, and it wouldn't happen for another almost 20 years. What, uh, no, more than that. Yeah, like 2018 was the next time it happened. 
Yeah. Explain the Denny Stones real quick before you. I'm gonna, I'll let yeah, Jan because talk Clint's about lifted the Denny Stones. Uh-oh. <laughs> Come on, Clint. Don't pump his tires up, though. Don't do yeah. that in here. No, today. no, no. Not you today. just did it. It's it's funny because you <laughs> talked about earlier, like when you put it out there, then you kind of have to live it. Yeah. And it's kind of what happened with you and I. Like we talked about it and we talked about it and then we put it out there. And I was like, oh. I guess I'm going to try. Because I come to the gym and I watch and I watch Clint deadlift and deadlift and he's strong. He's, I mean, you guys should know he's really strong. I've seen him pull over 600 pounds a bunch of times. He's stupid strong. He's stupid strong. He's not stupid strong, but he's really strong. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you. She brought you down a notch right there. <laughs> the Denny Stones, for those of y'all who don't know, 733 pounds Something like and that. change. Yeah. 733 pounds between two different stones. Um, they're on rings. It's not even, so it's kind of a it's a weird split. Um, it's like a little bit more weight in on the front stone, like ninety pounds or difference or so. Seven hundred thirty-three pounds in total. She lifted them. What was the year you lifted? I think it was seventy-eight or seventy-nine. Okay, so it hasn't. It's a long time ago. No one else did that until twenty eighteen, right? So that pioneer when it comes to that. Um, y'all do that at the Arnold. What was that like? What was that experience like? Well, actually doing it, so, and then that feeling of actually. Doing well, it. actually, the way that all worked it was kind of complicated. But the idea for Terry was very good friends with a man named David Webster in Scotland, and um, who promotes the Highland Games. He also David was a big part of the start of the Arnold Strongman Classic, and lovely guy. And um, and David was actually the person who kind of like popularized the idea of the Denny Stones. And there have been a few men through the years who were able to go to this remote region of Scotland there at the Patark Bridge outside Aberdeen. So it's not like right at the Edinburgh airport or something, um, where they would lift the Denny Stones. And it was not a big list at the time that I did this. Um, one of the guys who did it, though, is the guy who played Darth Vader in the movies, mm-hmm. and David Prowse. And first guy, of course, was Jack Shanks, an Irish policeman, who, about your size, really. You know, not not a... Not that you're not a giant, but he's. I appreciate. But you're that. you're not. <laughs> but you're not. A, I'm slender. I'm you're not a three hundred pounder. I'm either. not absolutely no. not. No. So anyway, but so there was um, Terry. After the article came out about me, there was some interest. There were opportunities for me to do things in different places, and so I actually kind of did. Strength performances. I, when Bill Kazmaier was in my life, Bill and I repped for a company called Diversified Products. They sponsored us. We used to go and give demonstrations and different kinds of places. Um, I did stuff for the Guinness people on TV and all this kind of stuff. So anyway. Johnny this, Carson. Huh? Johnny Carson. I did Johnny Carson, of course, yes, and other things. But the um, I could lift, I could squat the side of my car. Did I ever tell you that? I don't think you ever told me. I had a Fiesta, and I could get under the driver's door, and I could pick it up just so that that side of the car would pull up. It hurt, but I could still do it. But I, but I also learned to do things like drive nails through boards with my hands. I could do, <laughs> yeah. I opened for Bill Cosby one night. Wait, oh, really? Uh-huh. We don't know that story. Do you yeah. Know that story? No. And, and he did not hit on me, which I'm very disappointed <laughs> by. <laughs> he probably was, he might have been a little scared. That was actually out in Portland at the uh, state fair out there where he was like the comic headliner. And I was appearing there in a, and for the Guinness World Record people, I did appearances for them. And I, and this is somewhere in the 80s. And so, and so I did my little strength act where I drove the nail. I lifted a bunch of kids on a table, kind of like Paul Anderson did, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, somewhere in all that in the late 70s, this idea of going to, to Scotland and lifting the Denny Stones 
um, came up, and Sports Illustrated was interested in it because of kind of as a follow-up thing, because I was known at that time, if you follow. And Bill Kazmaier had just come into our life at that time, and we had met Bill out in California, who was a great powerlifting champion and also three times World's Strongest Man winner. And Bill had come into our lives and was living with us. We were at Auburn, Alabama at this time. And so Terry invited Bill to come. And and so we went over, and I had I trained really hard for it. That was when I started doing all those heavy partial movements where I would do pulls from my knees and then pulls from higher up on my thighs, just trying to lift as much weight as I could to mainly to strengthen my upper girdle, upper, upper body structure, because I'm not... I'm not big in my upper body. You know, I don't build a lot of muscle in my upper body. And so I would do, you know, these heavy, heavy lifts. So anyway, but when we got over there and David Webster was going to meet us in Glasgow and then we were going to take a car together, the group of us would go up, you know, several hour trip up to Patark where we would try to lift the stones. And so one of the things that was memorable about that trip was that David had gotten a van, but it was like a utility van, and it didn't have any seats in the back. So, so Kaz Meyer's with us. Kaz is weighing probably 315 at this time. Kaz. Kaz. And so Terry's, of course, up front with David, and they're talking a mile a minute, as they like to do, about everything. And, but Kaz and I are in the back in lawn chairs, <laughs> woven lawn chairs, and we're they're not tied down to anything. And so we're kind of like sliding around as we're going through <laughs> Holy this. Cow, yeah. And then the Cass, and then Cass's chair breaks. And so Cause he's ginormous. Cause he's yeah, because he's ginormous. And anyway, um <clears throat> but then the whole but then we got there and um the stones were looked more daunting than I expected them to. And they were really heavy and I didn't pick them up on the first time. And um, and um, I had to try them. I took three tries before I got them cleared. And one of the things that happened was that um, when I we had had a thing the night before with a guy who was a local official, and even though the trip was kind of about me doing the try and Bill was kind of the afterthought, and I don't mean that in the wrong way to Kaz, but it was really that was in the beginning. That was the sort of the plan. Okay, yeah was that um, uh, this guy had come and, like, he had had scotch and all this kind of stuff for everybody, and then he had presents that he gave to Bill and to Terry, but not to me, which were these, you know, these little knife things. So it was no big deal. But the next day when I missed it after, like, the, tried it twice, and I still couldn't, because for me, my legs are shorter. You know, I have relatively short legs. Good for squatting, but not so much for the other stuff. Um but Terry just said, you know, you might want to think about last night and when that guy didn't give you a knife like he did the rest of us. Huh. Yeah. It was kind of good motivation. Yeah. And and then he just said, you know, and Terry always, always was so good about thinking about like the historic significance of what we were doing. And he just said, you know, you need to think about, you know, you know, think about this because he said, if you can do it, then later other will too, others will too. And uh, anyway, and then I did it. Barely. You know, I mean, um, I don't know. It was, it, the funny thing about it is that in hindsight, like, you know, I, I ended up breaking 1,000, 1,100, and 1,200 pounds in the total. So I hit the, all three of those marks. I did roughly 60 different world or American records in my career. 
Um, I lost, I competed in five different bodyweight classes. Oh, wow. And set records in all five bodyweight classes Mm -hmm. as a lifter. I did not know that. Yeah, all the way down to 146, 148s. But the thing that people remember most now, and Terry was right, is the Denny Stones. Because it was the record that lasted the longest. And it was also the thing that at the time seemed least likely that a woman would pick up plus 700 pounds, even though now we know that there are lots of women who can do that. Because, I mean, I was in Scotland this summer judging a contest in which there were several women there who picked them right up. And I was really happy to see that. I love that. I Mm -hmm. love that we have so many women now involved in sports and strength. I'd love to bridge into that a little bit. Um, We definitely have women that listen to this podcast. And I'm still relatively young in, in the field compared to the, the work you've done. I'm this he is my just 20 threw me under the bus. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry, it just you're you're like you're like Master Yoda. But, um so 28 years for me and then even now today and Jan, you know this, like it's still hard for women in this profession. So you have been a pioneer, you've broken barriers in powerlifting, being in Hall of Fame, one pioneering study of strength. What would you say to our women listeners out there? Like you just, it's like you're in a, it's a male dominated field. And you go, yeah, oh, I, that's okay. I'm just going to shatter that. What would you say to them? Like, how do you, how have you done that? Well, I think in the beginning, I was, I was lucky that I had Terry, you know, because like in powerlifting, there were women who were, who came in right after me, let's say, who also started showing up in meets in like 75, 76. And we didn't really have a national, we didn't have a women a meet that was just for women until 77. That was called the All-American Women's Open. Okay. Okay, that was when we can sort of mark the real beginning of women's powerlifting. But there were women in the 70s who were showing up at like contests run by male judges, because there aren't any female judges yet. And they would be told things like, you know, the rules say that you have to lift in a jockstrap. And there's nothing in the rules that says you can wear your bra. And so if you want to compete in this, con- I mean, these were guys who were not encouraging women to be there. But I always had Terry with me, you know, who sort of, you know, big presence and kind of a famous guy, if I can put it that way. And so he helped with that. But I'll tell you, I think the secret, Donnie, for me was that, and this is why I think sports are so important and why I will always argue that sports belong at universities is because sport taught me how to be confident about myself. So powerful. Sport taught me how to not be afraid to speak up for myself. And it also taught me that that I could try and do things that I never imagined I would do as a girl. I mean, I have to be honest. I did not go through my life as a kid thinking I'm going to be a university professor. I became a university professor because my experiences being an athlete and whatever kind of minor celebrity I had in those years as a sort of personality in the world of strength, I was confused and interested in and like wanted to understand why it was that the fact that I was doing that as a woman was so unusual to people and what it meant. And for me, it was like it empowered me in so many ways to to be a better personal, you know, to feel like I could speak, mm-hmm. to be a leader, if I can say that, because I think I have some of those qualities, you know? I would say so. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah, no I mean, it's, it's very funny, you know, it's like I think about um, a friend of mine recently invited me to go to a, a, a lunch thing, and he said, but I think, you just wanted to warn you, I think all the other guys there will be men. Are there all these people there? And I said, that's not a problem. I'm not afraid to I walk it. it. 
Yeah. I'm not afraid to walk into a room of men and speak to them and have lunch. But I think as an academic, you know, that's really why I went back, because I wanted to understand strength. And the more I understood about strength and its importance in people's lives was it also made me realize that for women, we have actually sold them a bill of goods to think that they don't somehow have the right to be strong. Hmm. But let me just say, there is nothing in your life that is better if you're weak, period. I mean, I don't care if it's just you want to be, you want to stay at home and be a mom or whatever you want to do, but there is no advantage to anybody's life to try to just say, let me celebrate my weakness. Absolutely. That's mm-hmm. what I'm you know, I don't think that makes any yeah. sense for women. And, uh, and, you know, I think that one of the other things that I've tried to do, and again, I'm blessed, you know, that I was married to a man who got it and who also said, go get it, you know, and who understood that if I started, because I didn't take a, start my PhD till I was in the middle my middle 30s. I mean, I didn't do it in my 20s like most people do. But who understood at that point that, um, that for me to do that, he would also have to make some sacrifices in time. His life was going to be impacted by my desire to go do things. And he was willing to give me that space and say, yeah, we can do that and I'll support that. But, but for me myself... I really think that a lot of it also has to do with I don't try to fall back on my, not that I have any feminine wiles left (laughs) at this point, but I've always just tried to behave like somebody who's, I've always believed I was the equal of anybody. I mean, I really do think that I know I'm not the smartest person in most rooms, but I always believe that I'll probably work harder. And I think you've proven that. Yeah, I think you're. Yeah. One of the smartest people in most rooms, Jan. Well, I know, but I'm just saying— I'm not going to sell you short. But I'm just saying that um, it's—I think—and I think those are, again, lessons you learn from sports. Yeah, no, I I mean, I can definitely—I'm glad you said all that. Thank you for sharing. I think I have four daughters, and I fully, you know, can attest to your conviction and your belief that's made you so amazing. Like, that's why my daughters, I wanted all them in sport, you know— and not that they were, they weren't all of them weren't super gifted, but I just wanted in them because of what you just said. They would have more confidence and have more belief in themselves than they would if they didn't do that. So it, strength, power, strength training is so empowering. It's huge. Like how yeah. many times in your day to day do you see someone do something that you can tell they don't think they can do it? Yeah. And then when they do it, you just see this. Oh, I, I am stronger than I think I am. Well, I think the other thing about lifting that works for me personally was I'm a planner. And so like we would always, like if I was getting ready for our meet, we would figure out 12 to 14 weeks out. We would start, we'd sort of lay out the master Mm -hmm. plan. We would actually kind of figure out, you know, I was using periodization way back before most people were. And then I would sort of set those goals up so that I knew that I was going in a certain direction. And so hopefully if things worked right, I wouldn't miss a single rep of that workout that I pre-planned before that competition. And actually worked pretty well for me, you know. And and but that's that actually shows you planning works. It also shows you that if you can believe in the process that you can get there. And I I I worry sometimes these days when I talk to folks who are training and 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 every every time they turn around they're using their app to find a new workout of the day. And so that the that kind of systematic approach 
I think maybe, I mean, I'm not saying you can't stay fit that way because you probably can because you're getting movement and exercise and all that. But I think if you really have specific goals in mind and you want to maximize what you're trying to do phys physically, I think that you need professional help or at least make yourself into a professional who understands enough that you can actually make the right choices. Yeah, there's a book called by Andy Galpin. I don't know him that much, but it's, the book's called Unplugged. And the whole book's about what you just said, like how can you really push the limits physically if you're always following some technology to tell you what you should or shouldn't do? And you don't you don't get tuned into your body, so we miss a lot of the application to just be unplugged from that sometimes to know to find your limits. Yeah. I I actually really enjoy CrossFit, not the practice of it, but watching it and seeing the incredible fitness levels of some of the the cross most of the CrossFit athletes who are at the national level. I mean, you saw yeah, it's them. Astounding, yeah. You know, when we did the Rogue Invitational up here, which is where Clint lifted the Denny Stones, by the way. <laughs> it was pretty. It was incredible watching. But those you athletes. see those people, and you're going, "Oh my God!" Because um, they're they're beyond Navy SEALs, I'm, I'd have to say, in terms of their overall fitness and ability to do things. And um, we didn't have people on the planet like that in 1973 when mm -hmm. I began lifting weights. I mean, I think one of the, when I think about why history matters, I think it's because it's always easier, when we think about like where the lifts are now, like, do you know what the women's deadlift record is now? I'm not sure. What is it? Over 640 pounds for women. 640 pounds for women. So, and that's only possible because, you know, Andrea, a couple years ago, did 630-something, and before her, somebody does, you know, 610. Showed it could be and done. And then, and so... You're pushing that limit. You're pushing the limit, but it's also that psychologically, you know it's possible. It's like that four-minute mile. It is exactly yeah, like Roger the four-minute mile. Yeah, Roger Bannister, yeah. And because in the year after he ran that, there were like three other guys that did the same thing. And the next year, and, exponentially more. Yeah. And that's what happens. Quick, qu uh, sorry, Clint, yeah, I got ahead. a question for go you ahead. here just to jump into that. I know we're, we're getting close to the end here, but Jan, just kind of as a historian and looking at where we're at present day um, with training or the sport of strength is now, what are we, any gaps we're missing? Anything you see that's just not, oh, any, you know, I'm talking high level, you don't have to be super. Yeah, I, I think it saddens me a little bit that there's still women who are worried about lifting weights. And I still think there are a few women that are. But I think yeah. for the most part, we're over that hurdle. And I think most young women do that. I do think when I look, and I'm not in the, in the as you know, I'm not in the weight rooms as much as I used to be, especially now that I'm running the department. Um, but I do think that in terms of like scientific research, we still pay less attention to women than we do to men in terms of how to maximize strength. I think in general, um, there's more of a tendency to think on the behalf of some coaches, but not all, that women should still be maybe treated a little bit differently because they're women. And I'm not not suggesting there aren't some psychological reasons why we need to sort of think about that. But uh, I remember in '80 when I was at when we were at Auburn, the woman who was the AD there asked me if I would help them with the women's basketball team, and she had some money, and she said. I think we should hire you like as a strength coach for women athletes. And I said, that was great. And I'd be willing to help. And, you know, I was, you know, Terry was teaching there. And so anyway, and I was in the office having the meeting with her, but she said, I just wanted to sort of clarify. She said, now you wouldn't ask the girls to lift weights when they were having their period, would you? And I was like, well, actually, yeah, I would ask them to lift weights 
if they felt comfortable doing it. I mean, that wouldn't be a barrier for me. And I think we're past all that, you know, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it was, I think it takes a while for those ideas to change fully. And um, so I'm not sure I answered your question exactly. No, you did. I think, you know, there's, there's definitely still out there. But, I mean, a lot of the big hurdles have definitely been. But I, well, what I do see, I mean, if you look at, do you know, I mean, if you look at the competitive lists now of the number of women who are involved in powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting, which is huge, and CrossFit, which is another enormous sport now where women participate, and the much smaller group of women who are participating now in strong woman, you know, if we can call it that, or they still call it strong man as an event. Um, we have to figure out another name for this sport. But I mean, it's incredible to me that there are that many women now in America who are actually competing in competitions, given the fact that when we began back in the 70s, I think there were less than 30 women at the first nationals. Yeah, I mean, I not I'm not super like, you know, all the names, but even recently, I've just noticed a lot of like Olympic lifters, women just moving some big weights for small bodies. Yeah. Like in coaching, you coach long enough, you see somebody that small put that much weight overhead, yeah. you're like, she's strong. Yeah. You know, I mean, it doesn't take you well, a, a you, you look at your teams, like you got some pretty athletic women on, right. on a couple, like in that women's volleyball program and track program. We have some really phenomenal athletes. And they don't even realize it. They have no right? idea. No. They don't, the, girl, they the girls don't even know it. They see themselves every day and they're like, oh yeah, this is what we do. People, so If a random person from the general pop came into those weight rooms and saw that going on, they'd have no idea. <laughs> no, I was going to say, years ago when Mark Henry first came to Austin, which was 90, there was the shot putter here at the time was Eileen Venisi, who went on to a career coaching, as you know. And when she had finished her eligibility, I was in the weight room a lot, hanging out with Mark and Terry at the time. And I started talking to her. I said, you know, Eileen, you ought to come over because she was moving big weights. And she was a big woman, you know, but she was, the, you know, but she was built for her sport, of course. <laughs> anyway, and so I finally talked her into coming over to this gym meet we were having, but it was officially sanctioned in Old Gregory Gym. And, um, and she did like three workouts with Angel Spasov. And she broke the American records in the Drug-Free Federation at that meet, squatted over 500 pounds, benched over 300 pounds. I mean, it was just, and like, and then that was it. She was done. Never, never captured her back Checked again. Checked the box. Checked that box. And I was That's like, crazy. come on, Violin, you could do so much. And she said, ah, I've got some other stuff to do. So, but that was fun. Getting, I know we're getting closer, um, but I have to ask you, you've seen a lot of really awesome strengths of feet mm-hmm. or feats of strength. Sorry. Um, what is one of the most impressive you've seen? Ooh, there have been a lot, but I one um, if I can tell it quickly because I know we're getting close on time. Um, shortly after we started the invitation, the Arnold Strongman Classic, I think it was the second year we brought in this Russian weightlifter who was the best weightlifter in the world, named Mikhail Kokliyev, and Misha, as we called him, um, was just this phenomenon. Of like he had clean and jerked over 500 pounds in the Soviet Union. I mean, he's the real deal. He's the best weightlifter in in Russia. And Terry wanted him because he wanted the contest to not just be strongman competitors, because he knew that there were other strong people out there. So he invited him to come. He came in and he told Terry that he would he would do it, but he wanted to give an exhibition in Olympic lifting because that was what mattered most to him. That was really his sport. So we have two days of the most heavy 
stuff you can imagine that the guys do in the Arnold Strongman Classic. And then after the events, are, Misha does really well in the contest. We finish, the last event finishes at about 10 o'clock at night. Everybody goes to the bar, and Terry and I leave the bar at like 1 to go up to go to bed. And Misha and several of the strongmen from Europe are still there drinking. And um, and nothing else has been said, but, I mean, they're beat up. I mean, these guys are exhausted. And the next morning at 7 o'clock, we hear a little knock on our door, and I'm not, you know, we're not awake. We're just sound asleep. And anyway, and we open the door, and there's Misha standing with his little gym bag, and he says, we go exhibition, with a question mark. <laughs> we go exhibition. And Terry's like, we didn't think he had remembered, and he has just done the Arnold, which is really, really hard. So anyway, Terry makes a couple of phone calls, and it turns out that there was a kids weightlifting competition going on with guys who were like 10 to 14 years old. It's the only, And so we end up taking Misha to this children's event over at the convention center and he then warms up with several lifts and he cleans and jerks through a series of warm after a series of warms 529 pounds for those kids what was his body weight probably 315 wow. that's a lot <laughs> of now weight. you have to think about that 529 pounds after you've done two days of the arnold yeah. Early in the morning, and I'm not sure what time he, he came in. What time he For came sure. in? Clearly, as he trained and sweated, we were aware that there was a lot of alcohol still oh, in yeah. that you system. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, it was unbelievable. Like, because like no crowd there to psych him up. There's like 30 kids out there, a couple of old weightlifting coaches, Terry and me, and one of the most amazing things about it was afterward there was a guy who came to take some pictures. And the barbell's on the floor. And um, and the guy said to Misha, he said, hey, he said, would you pose and like put your foot up on the plates? And he looked at the guy like he was crazy. And he had some English, but not great English. And he said, he said, I do not disrespect the bar. I do not disrespect the bar. And uh, and I was like, wow, I love this that. <laughs> that's different. That's I different, coach. That. <laughs> so it's I like, like it. I want you to pose, but no, no, he's not going to put his foot up there because that would disrespect the bar. So he is a complicated man. He lives way out in Siberia, and uh, it was the first time we were ever around him. But he is one of those memorable folks that makes you love sport and likes you makes me happy to think about what the world of strength has to teach us about all kinds of things. That's, I'm going to wrap it up here, but the, like the world of strength, like we live in a weight room all day, every day, coach Donnie, right? Yeah. Um, the first time I went to the invitational with you last year, um, when we were fortunate enough to be able to help and be around. You were crew. You were it was, great. It was yeah. awesome. But going into that space, I remember thinking, oh, you know, this is what we do. I went in that space and I felt completely out of my element. Right. So it's, I, I, those of you listening, you just got a whole bunch that there is to unpack. I hope you get to see that there's so many, there's so many more things that led to where we are right now. Um, if you haven't researched those, please do check out the Stark Center. Stark Center is phenomenal. Get on campus, get to Austin. If you get a chance, yeah, check come out the to Stark Austin. Center. Yeah, it's open every day, and and then we have galleries. We have a library where researchers come and do research, but it's also about education. There's public exhibits up. There's a big exhibit up right now about UT football coaches, including some of that Mac Brown material I mentioned. That's 
We love we love you. Oh, I thank know. Thank you for when joining I love us. You. Yeah. So, thank you for joining us. Where and all can, you've done for us. Where can we find if somebody wants to go to the Arnold this year? Where can they sign up, get tickets on that again? So the Arnold Sports Festival is called. It's it's held in Columbus, Ohio, always the first weekend. And just go to the website Arnold ArnoldSportsFestival.com. And, and it's in can, March, right? March first weekend in March. And um, and the lifting will the strongman stuff and strongwoman stuff will be on um, on Friday and Saturday this year. There'll be some record breaker events that Rogue Fitness sponsors on Sunday as well, and uh, it's an incredible festival. Um, it's it, you know we have cut back on the on some of the sports a little bit in the last couple of years, but. Um, in one weekend, there will be as many athletes competing in the city of Columbus as are in the Olympic Games. Mm. It's amazing. Yeah. And some of those athletes, all of those athletes are phenomenal. We've seen them firsthand, and it's mm-hmm. it's an awesome space to be in. I think the thing about it is that it changes your idea about human potential. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it changes the way you view it and think about it. And yeah, it's that platform, right, that you just talked about. When you get on a platform like that, it just changes everything. Well, I think it's also when you stand next to somebody like Hafthor Bjornsson, who played the mountain in the Game mountain, of Thrones, yeah. who's one of my good friends. And um, But when you stand next to Thor <laughs> and you realize that he's six feet nine, uh, he's lost a lot of weight. He looks terrific now. But when he was competing, he was lifting at over 400 pounds. And, I uh, met him. You brought him by. Yeah, yeah. we got to meet him. To the times. listeners, this yeah. human being, I, I, I felt like he was re- literally like a modern-day Goliath. Yeah, I felt and, like a tiny person. And Brian Shaw is the same way. I don't think I've I met Brian you the picture. too. I don't think I showed you the picture of me and Brian uh, yeah. when the Denny's was happening. Uh, I'll have to show you after this. So Brian Shaw is six eight. What's he weigh? Over four, and he's still competing. And he looks lean though. Like people well, who saw that picture, they were like, his shoulder is as big as your head, and it, it was not <laughs> no joke. He is absolutely enormous, and he's so nice. Oh, nice! Oh, like, they're yeah. all nice. Nicest dude. There's nobody who's mean. He could smash you in a second, like but he's a, just a like great a guy. I mean, some of the men, you know, <laughs> you know, it's it, Angel Spasov used to have a, an expression that he would use, sometimes a Bulgarian friend of ours, and he would say, for every train, there's a passenger. So that could be true about romance, but it also can be true about sports, because not all sports are going to be good for all people. Mm, yes. I mean, powerlifting is actually That's great. Good, yeah. Powerlifting is a great sport for shorter men, actually. You don't have to be a real tall person to yeah, excel in powerlifting. Your levers are better if you're shorter. But the sport of strongman, and it's sort of like when you go to the zoo. Do you want to go see the insect house or do you want to go see the elephants? I mean, I'm not saying they're elephants, but like we're we are enraptured as a as people by the biggest things. And so seeing the biggest weights and maybe even the biggest humans who are lifting the biggest weights. There's there's interest in that, and it's attraction. And um, it's captivating, yeah. Yeah, and it sort of opens up your world to all those like childhood fairy tales about giants, and uh, you know, and what we think about that. But but when you meet them, but then you meet them in person, and you realize that they are these amazingly nice, really thoughtful, and often extremely scientific trainers, you know, and men and women, I should say. But um, like, you know, they're just lovely in many, many ways. Not all of them. I have my, I have my favorites, <laughs> but, but I think we all do, you know, and, um, you know, it's, uh, I realize that at this point in my life, it's an odd thing to be still running around with a bunch of 
pro-strong men and <laughs> trying to think up, which I just finished and sent the list in, what the events will be for this year's Arnold. Can't wait to see them. Yeah, there's, there'll be something That's new. Cool. There's always something new. So anyway, thanks for you guys for letting me do this. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Well, Dr. Todd, Jan, uh, friend, mentor, uh, world record holder, pioneer, who knows what you're going to do in the future. We know you're not done. And to your wonderful husband, honor him. We thank you for him, what you've done for us, what you're doing for UT and for this whole profession that we're in. It's crazy. But thank you for your time today. And we'll close it out. And uh, this will be a great uh, episode for 2023. We'll catch you on the flip side. This is the Team Behind the Team podcast. We'll make sure we put all Jan's content information in the show notes, the Arnold, and all that kind of stuff, Stark Center stuff. Please come to Austin and track her down and shake her hand and hug her neck. So, hey, y'all have a great 2023. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Team Behind the Team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.